Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. So David, I always enjoy talking to Richard Dolan. I think he's an entertaining speaker, has a lot of things that are very good about the research he's done. I then think, you know, is he just a little too accepting of some of the information that he provides and some of the people that he works with? It's interesting you ask that question, Gene, because like I stated in the episode, I'm my personal stance on this is that I'm not looking to make any friends in this field. Quite frankly, the events I've attended, a lot of the people are nice enough, but I can say this is the kind of crowd I normally associate with on a personal or social level. Uh, honestly, I really don't. I'm, I've been blessed with many friends, and quite frankly, most of my friends are not involved in any way in this topic. I mean, some of them are sort of interested in it in a peripheral way, but uh, it's not the singular focus of their lives. Like it seems to be for so many of the people who typically go to these events, who read this literature and so forth. Now, I get the feeling that because Rich spends a lot of his time in these waters and because he does show up at most of the events that deal with the UFO topic, that he has to be a little more uh, sociable about all of this in terms of, uh, you know, he's a very uh, polite man who won't really say many negative things about people involved in the field. And uh, that's all good and fine, but I don't know that that necessarily assists in any kind of objective discussion of this. I can tell you this, that when I was at the uh, Culture of Contact event last year and I did my presentation, uh, Rich and his wife came up to me afterwards, and they, they both really liked the presentation. Rich really, really was into it. But then he said, you know, I, the only thing uh, that I had issues with, he told me, was that you were a little hard on Paula Harris. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know, well, so what? Oh, well, we're friendly with her. Now, to me, uh, quite frankly, uh, that did not impress me. I look at Paula Harris and... Uh, I'm not impressed by who she is on a personal level. Certainly, I'm not impressed with her quote-unquote work or research in this field. I don't think she does real research. I think she's uh, someone who is involved with this for the same reason, Gina, I think a lot of people are. It's because this is the only realm in which some of these people can get any kind of attention. And, that's again, that's all good and fine if what you're doing is uh, using this as a way to sort of feed yourself spiritually, you know, on a, on a, personal, on a personality level. Maybe it's your 15 minutes of fame. Well, that's and it. that's good. Yeah, well, there you go. To me, that has absolutely nothing to do with having useful, productive, and logical discussions about this stuff. I just don't see those two things interacting. So I like Richard on a personal level. As you could tell, I was getting a little frustrated with the conversation uh, because, uh, I don't know that ultimately playing social games around this is gonna is gonna get us anywhere. And so it's fine that I understand why he has to do it, but at the same time, uh, it makes me a little uneasy. I can kind of agree with you to that extent. Yes, mm -hmm. that maybe he needs to be a little less accepting, but maybe he figures that he'd rather not have enemies. I don't know. I'm not trying to make it sound like we have absolute answers to this stuff, Gene. I've read some, some critiques of us on the web where people basically feel, especially in regards to the things that I say on the show, that people feel like I think that I know what the answers are. And I don't think those people are actually listening to the show. 
I don't have answers for any of this. I have my own opinions. I have some of my own theories about this stuff, but I'm in no way convinced that I hold some sort of answer to any of this. I mean, if I had answers, I don't know that I would be doing this show with you. I think I would have my answers and be done with it. I don't know if there are absolute answers to this stuff at this point. I don't even know if we could comprehend the answers if they fell in our laps. I don't know that that's the case. Hmm. I, have a, I have a lot more questions than I have answers. Let's put it that way. Well, I don't know how many answers we're going to get out of this week's episode, but we're talking to Stephen Bassett, and mm-hmm. he's going to talk to us about X-Conference 2009, but I think there's some very deep questions we need to resolve with him about disclosure in general, exopolitics, and maybe some of his friends and fellow travelers. Indeed. Coming up next on The Paracast. And now for something completely different. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time where we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Stephen Bassett of Paradigm Research Group, and we've had him on in the past, talking, of course, about the ongoing ex-conferences, about the disclosure movement. And I thought, Steve... For those who haven't heard you before on the show, it would be nice to kind of trace how the disclosure movement got its origins and how you got involved in it. Now, as you probably know, during the 1950s, Major Donald Kehoe, in his best-selling books, was talking about efforts towards disclosure, particularly in a book called Flying Saucer Conspiracy. Steve, are you familiar with Major Kehoe's work? Well, I'm certainly familiar with Major Kehoe. I haven't read all his works. They are, of course, very important if you're studying the history of that time. But what's, uh, the key point here is this. The government has been withholding information about this all along from the very beginning, and, and that was quite apparent, right, obviously, to anybody that was paying attention. And since then, the evidence is massive. You can read uh, Friedman, you can read Richard Dolan, you can read Tim Good, many, 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 many other authors and books, uh, where they've got documents that have been recovered, proving that they have held information, proving that they've lied, and so forth. So that's that's, no, I don't think there's any... Controversy at all over the fact that governments withheld substantial information. As far as disclosure, look, from the very beginning, there were those who wanted to, to, to have the truth out. They knew that something was clearly being withheld and they wanted it out. Keogh certainly did. That was true in the late 40s, it was true in the 50s. But the fact is that the government uh, got the, the truth embargo under, well, the government had enormous power and influence in the late 40s, early 50s. I think we can understand why. The media was 
modest free networks with 15 minutes of news, some radio, some major papers. Uh, and, of course, everybody was quite happy with the United States government at the time, and they believed anything they said. Uh, they had obviously successfully won World War II. They, they, had, they had great influence and leverage. They, they held all the cards. And so whether you wanted, if you wanted something to come out or you wanted the truth, it was irrelevant. You weren't going to get it. So, and this has been the case from the beginning, all the way through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. There have been some efforts to get the information out. FOIs were filed. Books have been written, challenges in the government, and what have you. But there was no disclosure movement, and that's what's important now. If, if, if think of any other issue. Before there was a, quote, civil rights movement, I can assure you there were plenty of people that wanted civil rights. Uh, before there was a women's voter movement, there were, going back many, many centuries, there were people that wanted women to vote. But the time comes when things coalesce, uh, when enough is enough, and you start to get more mass participation. So the disclosure movement doesn't have much of a chance at all of coalescing until 1991. And that's when it technically begins. That's what I call the age of exopolitics. Uh, the era from 1947 to 1991 I call the UFO era. And that era was all about sightings um, and evidence and uh, looking in the sky and finding saucers and all that kind of stuff. The UFO era. The exopolitics era is not about lights in the sky. It's about the lies on the ground. It's about resolving the political conundrum the policy matter of the truth embargo itself. Okay, let's talk about the political conundrum now. Who is responsible for the secrecy? Is it just the standard military people? Is it the National Security Agency? Is there a top secret agency we don't know about in our government that's handling this? Well, keeping in mind that the whole thing was designed to be as secretive as possible, uh, that kind of makes it difficult to say what it was. I mean, that's the whole point of secrecy, right? Uh, but we know enough to know that a formal effort was made to bring the issue under control and, of course, classify it as a national security matter in uh, right out the get-go in the 40s. But it probably wasn't fully formalized until the Robertson panel in 1962, which was triggered by the massive uh, UFO events that occurred in Washington in July. Basically, that was a message that we weren't going away. Then they really had to get serious. They knew after the July events in Washington that this thing was huge, it wasn't going to go away, and that they were going to have to contain it or it was going to break out in the public very soon. So they, 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 they classified it, and they used all the techniques that they had. They had the National Security Act of 47. They had the, the NSA by that time. They had, uh, of course, the CIA, and they had the intelligence operations on, on, in the services. All, all of these, to one degree or another, were probably drawn into developing a full-fledged truth embargo designed to contain the ET issue from becoming publicly acknowledged and acknowledged by the state. They almost certainly created committees, one or more, uh, of high-level people that met to dis discuss how to proceed because there was many, many decisions that had to be made. Clearly, those, 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 those committees were not acknowledged. They were not uh, publicly known, and the people involved were under the highest security clearances. Over time, we think we learned that the name of the original was Magic 12, either formally or nickname. But it doesn't matter. They were going to create a committee. They were going to manage the issue. I, I like to refer to the idea of cross-agency committee or committees. I don't have hard information that that's exactly what they did, but 
I'm, I, I put pretty good money down at even odds that they did. And what I mean by that, and it's a very simple concept, you have a committee designed to deal with something that's highly classified. You need, uh, you want one representative from any number of 20 government agencies to be at that meeting and to be involved in the decision making. That individual is selected. That individual may not even, the, the agency that they represent may not even know that they're on that committee. Right? Uh, in other words, kind of a one-way door. So basically, they'll pick a person who's a representative of this particular agency, and that person is admitted to this committee on a need-to-know basis, and the other people in his agency are not aware of what he's doing or what she is doing. Very like, and maybe in some cases they are, or a few people are, or no one knows. So now you have a meeting. You have plenty of intellectual power there. And you have the knowledge or some, uh, you have the knowledge base of each of the agencies somewhat representative and you, and you address the issue. You take no notes, perhaps, leave absolutely virtually no paper trail, uh, or if you do, it's a full, it's a very disguised paper trail. And you can make decisions all day long and you can establish policy all day long and you can do it all, virtually unknown to the rest of the, the government itself. It's a basic concept. It's not complicated at all. I'm sure it's been used in other areas dealing with other issues. Is it a proper way to do business? I don't think so. I don't think we should have such committees in government at all about anything. But I think that's what they set up. Now, did they set up more than one? Possibly. They might have had several. And, they, and these committees may not have even known about each other. They might have had a committee dealing with purely terrestrial issues with respect to the embargo. They might have had a committee dealing with the technology they had gotten from crashed vehicles. They might have another cross-agency committee dealing with uh, how to deal with aliens themselves, assuming we had any direct contact. And those committees might not have been known to each other. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Okay, so we're being speculative here, and I wanted to tell our listeners we're talking to Steve Bassett, and David and I are probing what he's doing with regard to disclosure and the forthcoming X conference. So, okay, basically now we're speculating on what this committee may consist of, but let's look at yeah. even MJ-12. MJ-12 is highly disputed to say the least <laughs> yes yeah so and, can and, we and, even and lend credence to that well let's further uh, uh define the question gene because one of the things that we we can definitely tell from this whole situation is that th there are levels of information and levels of disinformation there are layers of this that are useful information and then you have all of this other stuff mixed in 
that makes it really difficult to try to understand what is actually relevant and what is distraction, right? So, okay, so when we talk about that, and then we, we project that over time, because like you said, Stephen, there's been something going on, obviously, since the mid-40s. So we've got a couple of generations of people involved over time in basically propagating and maintaining the situation of murkiness. And I think one of, one of the, the concerns then is what tools, what methods, what techniques are deployed to try to separate information from, from disinformation? You mean what, ma- you know, what, what massive funding uh, and tools had we were able to put together to counteract the efforts of the government to muddle this issue, a government that has budgets of hundreds of billions of dollars? Absolutely. Uh, you know, military services and yeah. intelligence agencies. Oh, yeah. In other words, they have tanks and guns and we have can openers. Let's make a very important point here. The disinformation, the muddlement, the uncertainties, the layers of obfuscation, all of that is laid to the feet of one entity, the government, period. It's their fault, their problem. They did it, right? We do what we can to try to understand what's going on. Uh, we're the recipients of the misinformation. We're not giving misinformation to the government to screw up their, their operations. Well, no, clearly, I, I well, 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 clearly not. I mean, the, the misinformation, yeah. disinformation, and the... The noise is being generated by the people who are hiding the secrets. That's pretty clear. Absolutely. I think we're, we're, so we're on the we're same page with that. And, and, and so to answer your question, we do the best that we can using common sense and looking across a broad range of evidence where you have a document there and somebody maybe has a witness here and someone does a little research. And you, you look at all that and you assess, well, look, this this particular point Maybe has a higher has a high probability of being valid and not being either incorrect or disinfo. That point less so, and you add that piece to the puzzle. The analogy I lose I use is imagine this entire thing, the entire truth about the ET reality and the history of it, going back let's just say to 1940, was a huge jigsaw puzzle of a thousand pieces or five thousand pieces. And in order to know it, all we had to do was put the pieces together and we would all have the truth. And so uh, lots of people set about uh, working in teams to uh, eat this huge jigsaw puzzle and lay it on a giant table. Initially unbeknownst to them, but later well understood, the government had gone in and yanked hundreds and hundreds of those pieces out of the box. Just took them out of the box and hid them Mm -hmm. somewhere so Mm -hmm. that they're missing. And then they threw and uh, replaced them with hundreds of other pieces from other pictures not related to this uh, in order to pollute the puzzle. And so now we're trying to put that together. And so every time a mistake is made or every time a piece is in the wrong place, I realize that in the intellectual ghetto of ufology, we love to pound on each other and blame each other for screwing up. I don't do that. The blame only goes one place. The entity that took the pieces out of the puzzle and put the bad pieces in, the government is totally and completely responsible for every single iota of lack of understanding that we have about the ET presence. Not our researchers, not the activists, not our columnists, not our media, not our websites. We're the victims of the embargo. The government will end it. We will get the truth eventually. And until then, the more we hang together and accept the limitations imposed upon us by the state, the sooner we'll get to the, the outcome. Okay, and so I really don't care if there was an NJ-12 or not an NJ-12. I don't care what it was called. There's enough evidence to know that they certainly had a committee operating. And it doesn't really matter who was on it. But if we knew, it would be nice. 
the details are uncertain. If I'm the government and I had a committee and I knew that there were thousands of researchers trying to get at it, I would put out a false document giving it a false name and putting people on there that weren't really on there in order to divert the whole thing around. In fact, and they do that. Now, did they do it on the MJ-12? I don't know. Do I know the authenticity of those documents for sure? I don't know. They've been researched heavily, and I think there's some basis to give them serious consideration. But it doesn't matter. Were there committees? Were there operations? Was there management? Of course there was. Uh, the fact that we don't know exactly the name and the, it doesn't matter. Only one thing matters. Is the government going to relent and acknowledge the extraterrestrial presence or not? Once it does, the missing pieces will be thrown in a box, the bad pieces will be taken out, and then the government and the people together will put that 5,000-piece puzzle together, and at some point in the not-too-distant future, we'll know most of the specifics of the reality of this whole era, and we can move on with civilization and get out of this surrealistic Lewis Carolian nightmare we've been in since the mid-1940s. Oh, let's go back to the 1990s. Now, you said in the early 90s, things got better in terms of being able to get disclosure. What Everything happened changed. in the early 1990s to bring this about? It's not complicated. Uh, again, I, there, there was no directive sent out by the government saying this. This is based upon, you know, people that are very knowledgeable about what was going on and, and, and deep into this issue. But it was clear to me, and I'm very comfortable with this analysis, that the nuclear standoff in Soviet Union and the United States, which we are all familiar with, which was quite real, even even though some people think it was fake, nobody believes anything anymore. Even even when the truth pops up, they're not going to recognize it. I don't know how many thousands of nukes were basically on launch mode, but it was a sizable number. We know it was enough to destroy both countries and ultimately the entire planet through nuclear winter. As long as that was a few minutes away, the risk of... Entering the post-disclosure world where extraterrestrials were acknowledged as being here and, and trying to address the implications of all that was just too great. I happen to think if they had disclosed the ET presence in 47, we'd have been fine. I think they had disclosed it almost anywhere along the line, we would have been fine. And in fact, things might have gotten a lot better. The Cold War could have been shortened. But from their point of view, the risk was simply too great. The revelation of the ET presence, the revelation of ET technology obtained by at least our government could have launched a paranoid fear of some kind of ET technology race war or, or uh, arms war. And uh, where every, both sides are deathly afraid that the other has developed a weapon out of that ET tech that could wipe them out. And so at some point, some fool would decide the only, the only answer was a preemptive nuclear strike. Or who knows what else. And they just couldn't take the chance. So as long as the Cold War was in place, there was going to be no end of the embargo. You could drag 50 aliens out on the mall and call all the press. And before the dust cleared, the press would be distracted, the bodies would be gone, and nothing would come of it. There was no way that the truth embargo about the ET reality was going to end prior to the end of the Cold War. So the Cold War ends in 91, pretty much wrapped up by 91. Not only just ends, but the Soviet Union dissolved, which is even bigger. In other words, we could have had an end to the Cold War, but the Soviet Union remained. But no, we had the end of the Cold War, and the Soviet Union dissolves, and, and they became rabid capitalists overnight. Now everything changes. The calculation, the equation changes. And in the minds of a pretty substantial number of people inside government, at the, at the level of knowing, I think was that 
okay, now we have to seriously consider ending this truth embargo because maintaining it is a problem, it's expensive, and it's embarrassing. And there are potentially great benefits that could come. Now, did that mean they were going to do it in, you know, two months after the Cold War was ended? I, no. However, I think they started the planning, and it's my opinion that, I, that they had pro- possibly were thinking in terms of George Bush's second term. The timing would have been about right. He would have been in office um, three years, and um, he would have, um, let me see if I got this right now, he was in the second half of his first term. He would have had about two years to sort of prepare, and then he gets elected again. And then in 93, a couple years after the end of the Cold War, they could have proceeded. And, and, and they might have, because George Bush was exactly the kind of president they wanted if disclosure was take place. This is common sense. Uh, given the uncertainties and the concerns that the military intelligence managers would have had on this, Having a man of George Bush's background, H.W. Bush now, with his intelligence background, head of the CIA, you know, uh, uh, ambassador, vice president, president, he was perfect for them to make them feel comfortable about the risk equation of disclosure. And I have a feeling they were, they were moving in that direction. I think some things were going on behind the scenes that we don't know about that helped to trigger, uh, for instance, Philip Corso moving toward uh, coming out about his Roswell uh, evidence experience and other things we sort of noted from that time. But as we know, George Bush lost that election. And inconsequentially, uh, he was replaced by a man who was loathed by the military intelligence community. In other words, if George Bush for them was the perfect president to to be in charge when disclosure takes place. Bill Clinton would have been the worst president to be in charge when disclosure takes place. And I believe that's why they moved heaven and earth to try to get him out of there in four years. I mean, they went after him like no president in history, just about. Now, because he is one of the greatest politicians of the 20th century, they failed. And he got four more years, and that means that the disclosure process was held off for four more years. So, make a long story short, since 1991, it's been a matter of getting the right... Uh, president in place, having the ducks lined up, the right circumstances. In other words, getting the stars in alignment to pull this off. They were never okay, going to do we're it. We're talking about a conspiracy here that's lasting year after year. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Stephen Bassett of Paradigm Research Group joining us 
He is the sponsor of the X Conference. The X Conference 2009 we'll be talking about later. All right, let's look at this now. Bill Clinton is the wrong president. W, he's the wrong president too? Oh, yeah. Okay. What about... Uh, this is one of the things that people don't know. Well, they actually, they ought to know. But George Bush was... The military and intelligence community was extremely unhappy with George Bush. They did not want him to be president. They were very concerned. They, I, don't, I don't think there was much support for him being the disclosure president. We're talking about the biggest event in human history with enormous implications. And he was so unqualified to address a matter of that magnitude, it was apparent to anyone. Now, this breach, so, so disclosure, I think, was off the table right away, unless somehow he was able to incorporate large numbers of his father's administration in there, and uh, somehow they would back him up. But as it, with, with 911 taking place, and then, of course, the, the excursion into the Iraq, that, that his opportunity to be disclosure president is over. Um, in fact, and I was in Washington at the time, the breach in government between the military and intelligence community and President Bush after he went into Iraq was unprecedented in American history in my opinion. And if we hadn't and if we had been any other country, there'd have been a military coup. It was palpable. And when you look at the number of people in the military and intelligence community actually came out and went after him and then you you assume that for everyone that publicly came out there was fifty that couldn't come out because they were still in service. It was just an amazing breach. So Bush was no chance of being the disclosure president. Uh, and then you've got the war on top of that, and so eight more years had to go by. And that is the and and, and in, his, in my opinion, it was the election of Bush and the election of Clinton that really is the principal reason why uh, we're now 17 years into uh, the post the, the exo political era without disclosure. Right? That's the principal reason. There are others, of course. Yeah, and in other words, I, I, if I were asked, what is, the, what is the chief reason why, 17 years after the end of the Cold War, we, we don't have disclosure? The chief reason is, is that the two presidents of that era, Clinton and, 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 and W. Bush, were not acceptable to the managers of the issue internally as dis- and to be disclosure president, so it couldn't happen. All right, so here's a question then. Humans do things based on motive. Basically, people do things because they benefit from it. So, with the idea of disclosure of some body of information, what is the motivation from the inside for disclosure? Who benefits and who doesn't benefit? When you say who, yeah, let's keep in mind that the vast majority, all of the people working in the military intelligence community are patriots. Right? I mean, I, I realize that there's plenty of problems with the military intelligence community. I'm the first to admit that. And we see them all manifest in countless movies. Justifiably so, because that's Hollywood saying, hey, there's something wrong here, pay attention. Uh, but um, the vast majority are still the patriots. And so when you talk about motive on their part, you're talking about what is the benefit to their country, all right, not to them personally. Now, the answer to that is very simple. One, maintaining the truth embargo is extremely expensive, embarrassing, and difficult. And it's causing enormous erosion of the, the the social contract in America. It's not the only thing eroding trust in government, but believe me, it's a big one. Do you and think it's so in the top year, five? Do you think it's in the top five? Oh God, yes. I mean, if only because of its duration. I mean, ev- everybody knows. It, 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 uh, recent polls have shown repeatedly that the number of people that believe the government's not telling the truth about this issue, whatever that truth is, is up in the eighty-five rent percent range plus. Now you may say, well, so what? Look, the presence of extraterrestrials is a big deal. 
So if, if not 85% of the people believe that the government is lying about something of that magnitude, then they're basically accepting the premise that government will lie about anything of that magnitude. This kind of distrust or disconnection is, is corrosive. It's like acid. And so it's eating away. And until that, that trust is, is recovered, uh, that, that particular breach is, is, is uh, filled, uh, we're still going to have these kind of approval ratings of government. So they know that. And so they know that the cost of the, one of the costs of the maintaining embargo is, is the um, social contract itself. Number two, it's embarrassing. We, we look stupid as a nation. Our military looks stupid. Our politicians look stupid. Every time they have to walk out in front of a camera and come up with some asinine, idiotic, intelligence-insulting explanation for this sighting, that event, that historical uh, issue, they look like idiots. They don't want to look like idiots. This is not something they aspire to. Number three, and this is the big one, our human concerns, our human problems, thanks to our insatiable need to breed, we were one and a half billion people at 1900 now, 6.8, without the commensurate increase in services so that everybody can be fed, clothed, and housed. A minor, you know, neglect, I guess you could say. We're facing enormous problems, and we are so far past the era where we can all just relax and live in teepees. We have to use technology to solve our problems. Somebody says, no, no, if everybody will just grow their own cabbage and distill their own water, we can all live in peace. That's, they, they might as well just shoot themselves because they're living in la-la land. We, we need massive technology support, massive overpopulation base. And the people in government know that the ET technology sitting down there in those government facilities is world-changing, and the only reason it's not being developed on a massive scale for something other than the next big weapon is because to do so in any open fashion would, would end the truth embargo. They haven't been able to figure out how to end the truth embargo. So the tech stays in the basement while the uh, truth embargo remains to be dealt with. So the patriots down there want that tech out. In order to get the tech out, you're going to have to have disclosure. You may say, oh, no, no, they'll just grab the tech and they'll race out the gate with it and drive on down to the New York Times. No, it doesn't work that way. So there's a third reason, and there's a fourth reason. The United States is in the process of committing a British Empire. You know, where the British went from the sun never sets on the empire to, you know, leave a message and we'll get back to you. Uh, we're in that process uh, of diminishing ourselves to the point where we are a second power. The only thing we'll have to really, quote, impress anybody will be our nukes, which we can't use. That's where we're headed, and they know it. Uh, and there are many reasons for that. So, one... If that technology is brought forward, obviously with the United States operating in a very significant role, leadership role, it doesn't mean you can't give some away or a lot away, whatever. The point is it would be initiating a leadership role. Our status would be enhanced. But even more importantly, and this is why when I say the truth embargo is about to end pretty soon, I mean it. The evidence is clear that other countries have had it with us. They're not buying our BS anymore. They're not taking our lead anymore, and they're not going to sit on this reality much longer. And so if we do not disclose it, another nation will. And the history books will talk about that nation. And the only comment they'll have about us is, well, we lied for 72 years, and even at the end we couldn't tell the truth. A nation of liars. So the legacy, the historical legacy to the country is enormous. The political legacy to the administration and power at the time is almost beyond measure. All of these will be lost in a second.
France, China, Canada, the UK, Mexico, Brazil, or any significant nation with a significant air force goes before their people and discloses the ET presence with a reasonable amount of accompanying proof. These are big carrots. And uh, as I said, the benefits of, or, and the reasons for keeping the embargo have pretty much dissipated. They're gone. And it's operating pretty much on its own momentum now. Assuming you take a bunch of assumptions to be reality. So let's look for a and moment. Assumption at, you don't think it's real. Well, let's, I'll, I'll, absolutely. I've always been fascinated by history. I've learned through my life that we can get a good idea of where we're going based on where we've been. So we look at the greatest secret before this that the United States government and military was able to keep, the development of the nuclear bomb, the atomic bomb. Right. Okay. So we see this uh, this grand technological effort, perhaps the greatest technological effort of the uh, 20th century, and it was devoted specifically, specifically to creating a weapon of mass destruction. That was its goal. All right. We look at how history then has dealt with the creation of that incredible technology since the 1940s. And, and what do we see? We see some countries taking advantage of this thing called nuclear power to become energy independent. Certainly not the United States. Certainly not most of the modern uh, technological world. What we, what we do see is the creation of an incredible arsenal of nuclear weapons, enough to destroy the planet many times over. I don't think there's anybody that will debate that point. Right. Right. So, now, theoretically, we assume for a moment that we've been able to take technology that is very likely thousands, if not millions of years ahead of ours, and mm -hmm. somehow reverse engineer it. Mm -hmm. And we wonder, what would we do with that technology? Some of us think that the development of, of the atomic bomb and the nuclear capabilities that the world has provides a very good model, a map, to see what we would do with, let's say, an unlimited energy technology. Because the, the whole point you brought about living in La La Land, I think, is really relevant here, where people think, well, we have this incredible um, uh, technology that we've somehow reverse engineered, which I have huge problems with that assumption. But let's say for a moment it's true. I'll play that game. Now we have that technology. What will we do? Will we provide cheap energy to individuals so that they can continue with their consumption-oriented lifestyles and reproduce until basically there's not a square inch of the planet left un un unfettered by human feet? Or do we develop incredible weapons out of it in order to maintain some sense of military superiority which some might argue, hey, the United States has the most massive military in the world. We have, we've spent the most money of any country in our military, and look where it's brought us. Where has it brought us? Again, we look at history. So, are you assuming, Stephen, that if we have this amazing energy technology, that we're going to use it to <laughs> heat people's homes, or will we use it to develop advanced weapons? Well, let's pull your point down to its basics. You're saying that... Hmm? The nuclear uh, program of Manhattan Project is a earlier model for having access to ET technology. We obviously weaponized the nuclear breakthroughs in science, right. and uh, therefore we would and, and, and we try to keep it secret, though it didn't stay secret for very long. Mm -hmm. And that uh, therefore, if we ET tech, we would weaponize it and try to keep it secret, mm -hmm. uh, and would never allow it to be used. 
practical purposes. All right. Well, here's why your point is not going to doesn't really go get anywhere. First of all, as a model, let's use it. We got the technology. We were in the middle of a a very very tense situation with a clearly defined enemy right after a war, and so we uh, and, and initially, by the way, we were at war and a hot war, and so we made the um, weaponized it, used it. And then and the new enemy emerged. We continued to develop it as a weapon uh, while keeping as much of it secret as we could. I mean, believe me, you know, in the 1980s, it wasn't like they were publishing all their nuclear secrets. All right, now let's look at the ET tech. ET tech comes into their hands around the same time, just after the Manhattan Project is finished up. They weren't in a hot war, but they were in developing Cold War. So we, we would assume that, yes, they would certainly keep it secret. They did. We would assume they would look at it for weapons possibilities. I'm sure they did. So it was alien technology, and the idea that they would look at it and figure out how to weaponize it is, well, that's a huge assumption. They would look at it for that purposes. But how long it would take them to find a way to weaponize it? Who knows? 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Why would you call that a huge assumption? But why, you have to qualify that. Why is that a huge assumption? I am, whoa, whoa. I, you asked, you, 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 you picked a model from the past. Right. And said, based upon that model, then we should project uh, in the ET issue forward in the same way. That's exactly what I'm doing. And what I'm going to show you is you end up exactly where I say we're going to end up. So they would have probably attempted to weaponize it. And they would have attempted to keep it secret, exactly parallel to the uh, Manhattan Nuclear Tech Development Program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But as we know, in the Manhattan Nuclear Tech or the Nuclear Tech Development Eventually, aspects of that technology was, was let out and allowed, and allowed to be used for peaceful purposes to affect the human condition. So, following that same model, shouldn't surprise anybody that at some point the ET tech, whether or not it's been weaponized or not, would be made available for peaceful purposes. So, I, I don't see anything really in the Manhattan um, uh, and nuclear uh, weapons tech development of that era that's that's significantly different from what has happened with the ET situation. We're following the same deal. It's just taken longer. The, the, the nuclear tech under the Manhattan program was really only highly secret for about four or five, four years, tops. Uh, and then, then elements of it from that forward were secret. The ET tech has really been classified and kept secret for most of the 60 years, though there have been the odd leak here and there and the odd reference, but certainly it's been maintained. But... I'm not surprised because, you know, first of all, the ET tech dropped in their lap in 1947 or thereabouts uh, as an alien uh, artifact in a way, whereas the nuclear technology for the bomb, which was developed in Manhattan, that, that was already after 50 years of nuclear development research into the atom that was well known and publicly known around the world. And so if you want to look at it that way, look at the... Um, the, the, the fundamental breakthrough in terms of atomic structure uh, that leads to the atomic bomb turns right around the turn of the century, right around 1901-23, right around in there. And so the period from there to the point where they've got a big old weapon and it finally gets kind of known that they have that and nuclear stuff is all over the place, about 1950, it's about 50 years. Okay, yeah, but that's not a linear progression. No, but it's not a linear progression. Um, like most technological development, there are independent efforts going on that have a certain amount of funding, capitalization, uh, momentum, and then you have a concerted effort. So let's re- let's 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 remember this: that the Manhattan Project was highly accelerated. 
it made huge leaps and bounds. Uh, uh, so we're, we're not talking about a linear 50 years. And by the way, I'm talking about the fact that it's well, not that surprising that given the fact that the ET tech virtually drops in the lap in 47, that 60 years later, right, we still haven't brought it into the public domain. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We're talking to Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group, sponsor of the X Conference, and we're talking about now what you say is the fact that ET technology falls in our laps in 1947. Hear about we're talking about because of Roswell? Well, yeah, the, 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 using the Roswell is kind of the touchstone crash. Well, yeah, but event. either it happened or not. Was there a crash? How would we get this ET technology? You got, it was a crash, yes. I'm quite convinced there was a crash at Roswell, and they had the craft. I also very strongly suspect they got a couple more craft. How many exactly, I don't know. Uh, kind of doesn't really matter. One, two, four, five. They got ET tech, and they've had it for a very long time, and they've had an unlimited black budget to virtually to investigate it. But how do we know this? So far, what I'm hearing is speculation. Well, we know that the government is aware of UFOs, and we're taking that awareness of UFOs to actually having the craft actually trying to reverse engineer the technology. How do we make that line of demarcation? Well, you, you, I'm not, you, you're making the law. I'm not making the leap at all. Uh, how, how do we know that? The, how do we tell that uh, a light is uh, the result of the electromagnetic uh, waves? And look, there's, there's, it's, it's not complicated. There's been 60 years of research done. 60 years. The total number of published references, books, magazines, and journals is well in excess of 10,000. Several thousand books, documents, lots of them. FOIA requests. Witnesses and interviews coming forward. It would take any reasonable person who was actually determined to master this evidence. Like someone, say, the lead attorney in a trial that had to master all the evidence in a very complex case. It would take any reasonable person anywhere from six months to a year to fully master and understand the totality of the evidence that's been amassed. Okay, we know there's evidence in terms of sightings, in terms of photographs, radar accounts, trace evidence. We have all that down. But and how by the way, we... let, let, but Gene, before you even say that, let, let's be clear here that we're not debating in any way a reality of an unknown phenomenon 
interacting with us. We're not debating that point. And that, that's a point I think we can all agree on. There's something going on here. There, 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 there had, okay, I mean, let's just be clear about this. But again, Stephen, when we go back to my model, you kind of glossed over it. But when you go back to my model of how nuclear energy and unleashing the power of the atom has been deployed, I, I'm very comfortable saying that if we compare the weaponization of that technology over the last 50, 60 years with how it's been deployed to public use, I don't think there's any comparison. Uh, I, I think, sadly, and I'm one of those people who believes that uh, the answer to many of our problems is building more nuclear power facilities. I, I'm a big believer in that. Uh, I think well, that, an, that... An acronym. I mean, we don't need more nuclear power because we're already past nuclear power. The reason that we, that's the reason they haven't built any plants in all these years. You don't think it's because the environmental lobby is really that powerful, do you? They didn't build the plants because every one of them is a white elephant. Look, let me be clear about this. You can, you can label anything speculation. Labels are nothing. Until you understand the totality of the evidence, right, one is not in a position to say what is speculation and what is not. I have a relatively good grasp on the totality of the evidence. And when you have that grasp, you know this. There's an extraterrestrial presence. It's not even, a, it's not even in the remotest doubt. Okay. The only reason there's any doubt at all is because the government says there isn't an extraterrestrial presence. Well, the government's a liar, as governments often do. Two, the government imposed a orchestrated, intensive effort to prevent a formal acknowledgement of this presence to the American people. They couldn't totally secrete it like they did the bomb technology or the bomb work out at Los Alamos, where they, you know, they had Russian spies all over the place. Because DDTs are coming and going at will. So they had a kind of a special problem. But they didn't need to, they weren't trying to hide it all. They couldn't. But they could certainly manage it and not allow it to be formalized. That evidence of that is, it's overwhelming. It's 100% certainty. It's not a doubt. Three, did they attempt to weaponize it? We don't have 100% certainty there. Because you, the, the weaponization work, if it was done, you can bet, so deeply classified and protected. And protected in a way meaning that if you want to go out and talk about it, they'll just put a bullet in your head, that kind of protection. So we don't know for sure. But based upon your own model, I'm very confident that they certainly tried and may or may not have succeeded. All right? Uh, so, you know, beyond that, there may be other speculations, but I don't care about beyond that. The fact that there's ET te technology... Certainty. The fact that there's an ET presence, certainty. The fact that there's government truth embargo, certainty. Those three things are enough to drive a full-fledged disclosure movement, a major change in political policy, and of course to motivate thousands and thousands of researchers and and uh, and others to pursue this issue at great personal expense and sacrifice. That's enough. The rest is details. Now the government. Well, the Gene, well, 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 Steve, Stephen, Stephen, I, I got to stop you. I mean, so are you willing to state that there's 100% certainty that we have reverse engineered and completely understand and control this energy source that is still, we're not being specific about what this energy source is, but you're 100% oh, certain that. that... No, I, I didn't say that. I, I specifically said, if you're talking about, did, did we successfully weaponize it or even attempt to weaponize it? No, we don't have 100% certainty there. We simply don't have enough information, though it's an extremely high likelihood that they attempted, right? Now, did they weaponize it? 
You know, they may not have because there is there is very very little evidence of the government deploying a profound weapon that seems to transcend the known state of technology. And I'll even include some of these scalar weapons because, frankly, if, if they exist, they're well within I think the the just the standard technological development of human science. And so. They may not have weaponized it, for all I know. But, I, again, I, I have no idea. I really don't. Right. So, so then uh, what solid evidence do you have, or do you presume exists, that this energy has been reverse-engineered and is understood and controllable? No, no, no. You're, 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 that, that's not the, the point of disclosure. We're not saying to the people, we know for a fact that they have built an energy unit based upon ET tech, and all we have to do is get disclosure, and the unit pops out a week later, and we're all going to be having free energy. No. What I am saying is is that there is no doubt whatsoever they have had that technology, and they have been working on it for 60 years, and that no, where whatever progress they have made, wherever they are, until that... Uh, that tech is available for all of the intellectual resources of the human race to work on and develop, or until it's just out, so it can be developed and spread, all right, then obviously it's going to have no impact on us. And so regardless of what the ultimate potential for that technology is, until we end the truth embargo and get it out in the open, we're not going to know that, are we? Same, same analogy with the, with, the, with the nuclear thing. Look, the government could have chosen to say, look, this nuclear stuff is very powerful, and we've made weapons out of it. And so for that reason, we are not going to allow nuclear technology to be used for anything other than military purposes, and they would have barred by law uh, uh, creating nuclear reactors and, 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 and power, power centers. They could have done that, right, but they chose not to. So at this point, uh, we're kind of uh, in that point. They they have chosen not to allow that tech to be used for anything else from what they want to use it for within the confines of the military intelligence or military uh, service of the country. And so uh, they they have broken the model that you referred to uh, as the Manhattan uh, nuclear weapons model. And so the truth embargo is an attempt to rectify that. Now, and say, okay, look, let's see what we can do with that tech for people, peaceful purposes. You got a problem with that? You got a problem with peaceful development? Um, and uh, that's where we're on. So uh, let me be clear. I, I don't know for a fact what exactly they have done with that tech. I know they've had 60 years and a lot of money, and I think humans are pretty clever and smart. And so I would bet good money on even odds that they've made some fairly substantial progress in 61 years. Would you bet against me? Yes. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. I would absolutely bet against you, and I'll tell you why I bet against you. Because, and this is something our audience knows, because I have been extremely clear and forthright about disclosure about my own professional background. I'm a technologist. What I've spent my life doing is studying uh, technology. That's what I do. I'm a technologist. Uh, It's clear that the development of technology runs along certain paths and certain and certain accepted types of milestones technology builds on itself there are t- at, at times there are significant leaps in understanding of technology that move us in in a tremendous degree for example the space program the space program uh, our effort to get to the moon is what really made integrated circuitry technology make a tremendous leap. Our entire 
really in many ways our entire technological computer-based technological society today is such a is such a direct result of the of the United States space program. That's what really created the push for miniaturization of integrated circuitry. I agree. So, Let's stipulate all that. What's that got to do with the ET issue? It's got everything to do with it. Um, let's assume that there is, an, and, and I have to say this, uh, Stephen, as an experiencer, as someone who has personally witnessed these craft in operation, one time at close proximity, which is something I have not revealed to the Paracast audience, and I'm doing that sort of now, at extremely close proximity, what right. I can tell you is that what we are dealing with, and I'm not willing to even say extraterrestrial. I don't think personally we know enough about what they are at this point to confidently make that statement. I'm going to be a little conservative here, but I will tell you this. Whatever they are, I'm making no assumptions about what they are, but I've seen their technology in work at close proximity. Whatever they are, they are way ahead of us. They are nowhere near us. All right. right. So, what is the point? The point. I'm. I'm going to make the point. The point is the idea that you could take an unlimited amount of money and throw it at some very smart people and tell them, understand this, reverse engineer this, get any kind of a grasp of this, is unrealistic. Let's go one step further. One step further. Gene and I have had discussions with somebody who a number of researchers are talking to quietly. This person's father, apparently, and we don't know this for sure, was directly involved in this effort to understand this technology. And what this person has told us, and again, we don't know uh, to what degree uh, this person is, is credible, but basically this person's parent spent a lot of time trying to understand something regarding this and simply couldn't get anywhere with it because it was so far beyond where we're at that throw all the money in the world at it. It's kind of like saying throw all the money at the world and understanding what what is what is the nature of existence beyond this life. You can throw all the money in the world at it. Some things you just can't buy for money. So when we when we talk about reverse engineering a technology potentially millions of years ahead of ours I'm not confident that we have had any ability to get a handle on it. I would bet against well, I you. I disagree with you. I think you have a much lower uh, uh, opinion of the human capability to master intellectual problems. Uh, you're leaving out some very significant uh, facts, such as the fact that however superior that technology is, it plowed into the desert in 1947, broke up, BT bodies fell out of it, so let me do it this way. There may be tech out there millions of years superior to us. There may be tech out there 5,000 years superior to us. Uh, but the one that we know they got from Roswell was uh, not superior enough that it couldn't crash and, and become dysfunctional. So I'll tell you what, uh, Stephen. Let's break for the hour here, and then we'll pick this up on the other hour. We're yeah. talking to Stephen Bassett, Paradigm Research Group, sponsor of the X Conference 2009. We'll talk about that and more on the Paracast on the other side. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. 
tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group joining us, and we're talking about the ability, I guess, to decipher alien technology. I'll tell you what, let's take it down to something more terrestrial that David and I have talked about. Take today's notebook, an Apple MacBook, the cheapest one for $1,000. Now go back in time to 1901, and you say, okay, reverse engineer this. What happens next? Uh, The analogy is useless. Why? Well, for one thing, you completely avoid the point that you mentioned before. Technological, intellectual growth seems to be exponential. So if we put the first flight in, in, in the air in 1903, and then within just under 60 years, we, we put a man on the moon, you see that you have an extraordinary exponentiality there. So with that in mind, let's, let's, look, at the, let's look at what we know for certain was possible. The United States came out of World War II victorious, wealthy, with enormous uh, industry. They had ET tech brought into their hands. They have the means to bring in the finest scientists in the world, 1, 2, 5, 10, 20, 30, to examine what they have in every conceivable way possible. As the years go by, the amount of money available only grew. The number of facilities grew. The technological tools they could use. The difference between, say, 1947 and 1977 exponentially increased. How many people totally have looked at that tech since 47 or multiple techs since that era? 1,000? 2,000? 4,000? How many geniuses? What kind of equipment was available? We don't know, but we know that they could have it. They could use anything they wanted. And so unless one can get their mind around that and just imagine that kind of focus, that kind of funding... With no restraint, whatever you need to do, whatever it costs, figure this out. And then you factor in the evidence for human craft. Remember, I mentioned weaponry before. Not a lot of evidence for the extraordinary weapon. Lots of evidence for craft lying around that could very well and likely be ours, but operating with technology that would not have probably existed had not ET tech come into play. Craft flying over Area 51, saucers and so forth. Anti-gravitic type systems. So there's a decent amount of evidence that they've made some progress. Even, and I'll even go further, even if we could state absolutely, we knew absolutely that they've made no progress whatsoever, and every one of those craft is just sitting in a crate somewhere, undeveloped, I would say we must have an end of the truth embargo so that that tech is brought out and made accessible to the finest minds in the world, just on the off chance. There's a few geniuses out there with abilities that aren't currently under the employ of the National Security Agency or the Army or the Air Force. No argument there. Stephen, no argument there. I think we can all agree that we want access. No no impact. No, we, we can all agree that we want access whatever it is that they're sitting on. I think that all of us who spend any amount of our time or life talking about this topic, we don't want less information. We want more information. So then the question you have to ask yourself is, is the information what you think you're going to get? Because I know that just based on my three years now, coming up on three years, and Gene's been looking at this stuff a lot longer than I have, I've only been really actively 
looking into this topic in a, in a, in a concerted way for the last three years, what I keep coming up with as I look into this is that in the same way that we can make an assumption that the government does have some actual information regarding, for example, what these things are, when I say these things, these beings, what they are, where they come from, why they're here, which is, of course, a, a huge topic, a huge question, I believe still a huge mystery. I think based on that same set of assumptions, we can look at the secrecy that has been deployed here, the, the, the embargo of information, and we could, we could model this and say, you know, perhaps the reason the government doesn't want to come out and disclose what they know is that what they'd have to disclose is that they don't know a hell of a lot. And if we look at what other governments around the world have been doing in, in recent years, releasing information, what becomes clear is that we see lots of reports about UFO sightings, lots of reports even about engagement on the, on the part of, let's say, fighter aircraft with these, these unknown craft, these UFO unidentified flying objects, but so far, with the release of the information by the British government, by the French government, by the Chilean government, as we, we look through that information, as we look through all those documents, what becomes clear to us is that based on that information, we don't know a heck of a lot about what that other is. Well, that, that's an assumption that's totally unsupportable. All we know from what they release is that's what they're willing to release. And they're not going to release what they don't want to release. So we we garner nothing. What we do know is they made the release, and the release itself is a very political act, but doesn't tell us what they actually know. The, the British government could have 40 integrity craft in the sky. They're not going to release that, but they did release the sighting reports, and that has implications. Okay. Uh, we, we originally started this discussion with a point of motive. What was the motive? And I think one of the key motives is we need access to that technology. And about the only thing one could counter that with would be this. Well, yeah, if we had some pretty advanced developments there that could help us, I could see why people inside government would want to get it out. But maybe we have nothing. Maybe we've made no progress at all. So then it comes down to this. Would it be a proper motive for the inside people to say, look, we've been at this for 60 years. We still can't figure it out. Maybe it's time to let the rest of the world look at it. Maybe they can figure it out. Uh, in any event, if we can figure it out, we're going to be a lot better off. So the motive argument still stands. In any event, the motive is there. It's clear from the, what I'm saying. I believe that the, the truth embargo itself is a functional, formal thing stopped around the end of 1999 and has really been operating on, on literally momentum. I believe they stopped any significant harassment, wet work or anything like that, right around 1999 because the Clinton administration was almost over and they knew that that was not going to happen there. So in that sense, the, the whole thing is kind of uh, going to slow to a stop either way. Uh, we're just trying to speed up the, the process so that it doesn't glide on for another eight or nine years. Okay, but the lack so, of resistance and so forth is another mm -hmm. indicator that the inside is basically getting up maintaining embargo. Okay. What is the best way, then, do you feel, to accelerate the process? How do we go about doing this? Well, one thing, you keep the pressure on. You just never let up. This is the way almost all activism succeeds. Uh, I think the men probably figured out by 1920 the women were absolutely never, ever going to stop pursuing the right to vote nationally. And they give them. I think the British knew they were never, ever going to be without a major independence movement. And obviously the racists in the South of the states knew that the civil rights movement was never, ever going to go away. So you have to get that message across. We're never going away. Uh, secondly... You need to send as many messages as you can to the people inside, the good people inside, that you're ready. 
which is why the million thousand in Washington is important. The letters and faxes at any time is helpful, but at this key transition time to the Obama presidency, they're particularly important. And we've directed thousands of letters, faxes, and emails to the Obama administration uh, initially in the transition period, and now we're in phase two where they're going directly to the White House. And at faxonwashington.org, you can find the White House address, the White House fax, there's a fax number, and the email page where you can send your email through the White House's website. And they even have a comment number. You can call and leave a comment. Though I don't want anybody to just call and leave a comment. They needed to send a letter, and then a comment would be the cherry on the on the, on the, on the cream. What's been the reaction to the Million Facts uh, movement? There have been thousands. There's no question. I have been notified of five, six, seven hundred. You know, people have taken the time to notify me to send something. And I've had hundreds of copies, and I've, we've already got 70 examples of the correspondence up at factsonwashington.org. You can read these letters. They're pretty impressive. Very impressive, as a matter of fact. So all of this is sending a message. We want disclosure. We want it now. And that's that's really important because that message is not simply going to the president. It's going to the inside people that have to work out the details of disclosure and letting them know we're ready. We want it. We want it now. This is helpful. It's a very powerful thing. And in everything else we do, the race public awareness, the documentaries, the books, the research, the endless media appearances, particularly the good stuff, so I think... Uh, Nick Pope and Davenport and somebody else was on King just a couple of Larry King Live just a couple of days ago. And I think the, the, that was triggered by the uh, news uh, press release that was put out by Victor Vigiani regarding Canadian documents. Now, interestingly enough, I think <laughs> that Canadian documents have been out for some time. And I think Victor kind of made a breaking news story out of something that was already been around. But it was a beautiful activist maneuver because following the Denmark release, it got people's attention, and we ended up getting some good face time on Larry King Live. So all that stuff just keeps adding to the pressure, adding to the inevitability of this. The government has nowhere to go, and we've got it in a corner. There's only one way out of this corner. There's one door there, and it has a disclosure written on it, and, and, and the government has only one way to go. We have to walk through that door. Why do you Pretty think much. they're in the corner? Do you think a few thousand faxes is going to persuade the Obama administration, whatever the president feels, whatever the people behind this UFO cover-up might feel, do you think that's enough to make a difference? So in and of itself, no. But if you view the, if you, if you view the government standing in the corner of the room, looking out from that corner, what they see is a sea of people that have made it clear in the polls that the ETs are real and they don't trust them. They're surrounded by YouTube videos in the thousands, documentaries, television shows. They're looking at it with the faces of witnesses like Mitchell and others who have come forward unambiguously. They're looking at uh, the documents. I'm reminded of that Verizon ad where they, and it's very clever ads, where the, the entire Verizon team, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trucks and everything are all backing up the guy. Well, that's what they're looking at. They're looking at the sea of people with evidence and, and the Internet and the blogs and the websites and the, and the YouTube videos. Of the, and it's just, it, it, and there's no way out. So it's all of it piled up on top of each other that has pushed them in that corner. And there's only one way out of the corner. They've got to go through the disclosure door, and they will. The way out that's worked now for, for, a, for a long amount of time is the curtain of laughter. I mean, that, that has been a very effective at helping marginalize the topic for, for 60 some odd years. When you bring up, you know, the, the internet videos, the YouTube stuff, the TV stuff, much to my personal consternation, I know Gene feels the same way, uh, the topic is largely treated as a source of entertainment in the I media. I disagree. In fact, if anybody goes to my main website, paradigmresearchgroup.org, that's the portal mm -hmm. page. On the top page, the portal page, you can down at the, place at the bottom, you can kind of see a link right over to the PRG News Media Archive. 
We're on a pace this year to log in 2,000 stories. English language press. Mainstream. No, no paranormal press. Almost no ta tabloid stuff. There's a couple of tabloids that do pretty good stuff. It's 2,000 articles on a page. I think we have 1,200 for last year. Read them. Out of maybe one in every 150 of those is a negative ridicule piece or a hit piece. The rest are straight journalism covering everything. Uh, books, the evidence, the authors, the conferences, the sightings, government document released, the whole nine yards. Uh, Peter Jennings did a serious documentary, and it's just before he died. No. In fact, the media is coming around very fast, and the docs and the real-life coverage of this, even like UFO hunters, is rapidly gaining, if not passing, quote, the pure Hollywood entertainment focus. There'll always be E.T. movies and science fiction movies, and they always do very well, because the interest in the subject is universal and worldwide. But the serious coverage and treatment of the issue is, is growing very quickly, and I'm quite satisfied with where it's at right now. In fact, the people are where they need to be. The media is about almost where it needs to be, except the very high end, like Washington Times and the major networks, who are they're all on their way out anyway. They won't be newspapers or networks in, in due course. And the principal people behind the curve are the Congress, the academics, and ultimately the policymakers. And they're, they're the focus of the truth and bar. I mean, they're the focus of the disclosure movement. And uh, even their numbers are shrinking. So the number of people that are holding out, whatever, the hard, hardcore holdouts, is not really all that great. And the ability to get away with the ridicule of this issue is really very slim now. Uh, the, the bad astronomer he'll play, or Seth Shostak will print some stupid, ridiculous thing and get deluged with comments telling them that they're a jackass. And in fact, it's so bad that Seth Shostak has complained about it and has had a lot less to say lately. So just running out of ammunition, they're running out of air, runway, they're running out of time. The truth embargo will end, and then they will all decide how they're going to deal in the post-disclosure world. They could probably start off with some heartfelt apologies, but that's their business. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Stephen Bassett of Paradigm Research Group. And before we let him go, we'll talk about X-Conference 2009. David. Well, let's talk about it now. That's fine. So, Stephen, as you know, uh, I, I've attended uh, both uh, by myself with my girlfriend the last two X-Conference uh, events and uh, got some interesting discussions there and um, was able to come away with my own thoughts about it. So I'm looking at the lineup for this year. So let me ask you a question. Let's start with one of your speakers, Jeff Peckman. Yeah. Did he call you? Did you call him? No, no, I invited Jeff. All right. So, do you feel that Jeff Peckman is a is a face of disclosure? Not at all. I mean, he's an activist. He came into the issue, got interested, and drawing on his activist past, made some activist maneuvers, attracted a lot of press, got on a got a lot of media exposure, uh, and uh, ended up on Letterman. Quite honestly, pretty impressed with that, and raised the issue. So as an activist, I thought he did a great job. And so uh, he's coming in to talk about that experience. 
And uh, I'm sure a lot of people would be very interested to hear about it. So, basically, when he went on Letterman, I saw that. And let's remember, David Letterman, very popular comedy talk show. I've been watching Letterman for the last God knows how long. 20-some-odd years or so. Maybe, who knows how long, since it's been on. I saw him go on Letterman, and I saw him discuss the uh, Stan Romanek case and show uh, a still from the video. And the audience laughed very hard. Uh, David Letterman, actually, to his credit, was trying to uh, to be respectful. But, of course, when we talk about personalities, because ultimately all of this discussion is a discussion of humanity. Basically, we're all people discussing this. This is not happening in a vacuum. This affects all of us personally, some of us more than others. But when you've got a guy like Peckman, then what, what, what we find when we go and we look up Jeff Peckman and we do some real basic armchair stuff, I'm not talking about any kind of in-depth research, the curtain of laughter comes down pretty hard, pretty fast. And so with Peckman, what we find, like many other people in this field, he's a guy who doesn't really have much of a verifiable past. The parts of his past that do show up was that he was marketing something called the Metatron Harmonizer, a new age piece of gibberish, and of more concern in the last, what, month or so, he's basically gone online on the, uh, what is it, some uh, news website, with a piece talking about how President Obama needs to look at the Billy Meyer photographs to, uh, to get a better grasp of the reality of the UFO situation. Now, you're giving the man a platform, and amongst anybody who's in any way serious about this topic, not the masses, but people who are serious about this, this man is a laughing stock. Truly, has zero credibility. Truly. I mean, you don't have to believe me. Go look this up yourself. So, my question uh, here. Uh, David? Yeah. This is going to get us anywhere. All right? Until... Let me tell you something, my friend. Until you finally understand that the problem here is not about our opinions of who is the laughing stock and who's not, and who's selling Metatron and who's selling Amway, whose background is this, whose background is this. As soon as you realize that the problem here is the United States government has been, still is, you're just going to continue to chase your tail round and round and round. All right? Focus all of your concerns about legitimacy. Focus all your concerns about image on your own government and its willingness to lie to you, manipulate you, spend your money, go into false wars, turn reality on its head, waste trillions of dollars, and not worry so much about the picadillos and individual aspects of the people in the field. We'll start getting somewhere a lot faster. Well, Stephen, if you're gonna if you're gonna dismiss the notion of credibility, my friend, I don't care friend. about your background, and I don't look into your background. I'm not running an FBI agency here. All right, Stephen. Steve, hang on, hang on, Stephen. I mean, please you hang don't... on, hang on, Stephen. I just want to bring a point but out here. You got prepared to defend yourself, my friend, on the radio and on the air. Okay. I take it to a point, but I can spit back, and I'll spit back hard in public and stand up for my views. Right. Are you saying credibility, personal credibility is not an issue here? It's not an issue for the disclosure process, right? And your opinion of him is virtually irrelevant. Voice it all you want, but don't bring it up to me. I just don't care. If there is somebody so egregious, so awful, so terrible in their background and their thinking that their very presence is a mass detriment to the movement, someone like that turns up, I probably will say, look, 
Sorry, partner. Can't deal with you. Okay, so you don't think that Romanek yeah. is a detriment to the UFO if he's presenting information that's demonstrably false? I know. And, and, and you know, let's think about all of the contactees over the years who had that said about him by people that were absolutely certain that they knew exactly what their contact experience was like. The contact experience is just about the most complicated thing we've ever had to deal with. And each individual is going through something almost unique. And everybody's acting in different ways. And maybe it occasionally gets embellished. This is not my concern, and I'm in no position to sort it all out. But I don't have any time to waste about, I don't know, trying to figure out who's really real and who's not and assign them a bunch of points and make up a little list. I don't give a damn. Okay, right? so you don't care, for now, example. Stephen, please, I understand. The truth on this matter. Stephen, you don't care, for example, if Billy Meyer is fake and someone says Billy Meyer is great, Billy Meyer is the real deal. You don't care about that. But the point is here that if you see a mixture of stuff that has questionable veracity, don't you think the media is going to seize on that and say, see, all the people involved in the UFO field are a bunch of kooks? Oh, you mean they're going to seize on it when they when they aren't seizing on the latest picture of the vaginal area of uh, Britney Spears or Lindy Lohan? You mean that kind of seizure? You know, it's a big, wide world. There's a lot of people out there, and I just don't have the means or the money to police it all and know everything that's right or wrong, and then be able to carefully calculate who I'm going to get in and who I'm going to get out. I definitely draw the line at mass murders and biological, you know. Warfare, you know, and participants. Well, that's like that. good but to not know. Field is too muddy and complex, and uh, people come to me and say, "Travis Walton was a liar." I know it for a fact, and I go, "Hey, great, it's fine, bye." I hear this all the time, and it doesn't matter. Well, actually, Stephen, it, it does matter. Changing it, it, government policy is what counts. And Jeff Peckman, ultimately, he's not going to decide the issue one way or the other. And you aren't going to decide the issue one way or the other. It's just keeping the pressure on the government. I will not chase my tail, and I will not play the government's game in this intellectual ghetto that they created for us, where we're all tossed in here behind the ridicule walls and deprived of money and a lot of other things. And so we slowly decay and feast on ourselves like a pack of jackals. I'm not interested in that. You want feast? Go ahead. But you're, you're going to tell me that you know absolutely that the Meyer case is 100% fraud? Go! Write five books. If you believe that Romanek is a complete fraud, write four books. But don't come to me with this, well, I know that's not true, so how can you associate with him? I know but that. When, Steve, and when you, when you, oh, so when you give someone who we know is... Involved in this in a questionable, absolutely, Stephen. And again, let me finish. I let you speak. Please have the courtesy to let me finish a point. My concern here, my concern here is to see highly credible people being mixed in with much less credible people. I'm concerned about that because I, like I said, I do have a strong belief that there is something going on here, and I also have quite a bit of respect for someone like Richard Dolan. My concern is when I see someone's credibility, because this is all about trying to maintain a credible level of discourse and, and to deal with people's personal credibility. Like I said, when we're dealing in a, in a human endeavor here, people's credibility are of a tremendous concern. Tremendous concern. I'm perplexed 
as to your reaction to my concern about taking someone who has zero credibility, like a Jeff Peckman, and giving him equal billing, equal footing with someone like a Richard Dolan. I'm concerned about that. I'm highly concerned about that. I'm not concerned about your concern. If you're really concerned, then you got a website, you create a section on that website, and I want you to make lists on that website. Super credible, fairly credible, not credible, zero credible, sons of Satan. And put all the slots in there. Slot everybody in there based upon... I think we've already done that. And and, and make it available to us so that we can select from that list like a Chinese menu and make sure we don't get anybody from the wrong list. If I'm going to have a conference, if I'm going to have somebody from from the not credible list, then I can only have the not credible list. I can't mix them. Put that out there so it helps us out. Give us the benefit of your genius and expertise so that we, we will know who's okay and who isn't okay. But, you know... Do something meaningful, but just expressing your concern really doesn't mean much. Excuse me, before we go on. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums, On the back, it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official PowerCast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official PowerCast t-shirt you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney you never know what's going to happen next we're talking to stephen bassett of paradigm research stephen here's the issue here and i think you have to consider this if you know that the media is going to treat ufos as entertainment not a reflection of reality then i think i don't know that so you don't put words in my mouth. I don't know that. Well, you know, if you see how UFOs are being treated by a lot of the media, take, for example, look at the press conference held by James Fox and Leslie Kane, mm-hmm. and then look at the coverage of the press conference held by Stephen Greer, where a few people who we might regard as questionable appeared, and look at the treatment of those two press conferences and see if there's a distinction that you could find. Not much. As a matter of fact, there was a substantial amount of coverage of the initial press conference, and there was a lot going on behind the scenes that would have led to further witness uh, investigation. I know Nightline was looking at it. There was enormous na- na- international coverage of that. And the principal reason that that particular press conference did not go forward, or rather manifest what we say a, a series of, I think, more uh, news cycles, is because 911 happened four, four months later. As far as the conference put on my list, Kane and Jay Scott, great event. I thought they did a fantastic job. I think it was positive, but I also follow all the news coverage. In terms of any significant follow-up there on the witnesses to get out of the country, almost nothing. I think it did bring Gene uh, Fight Symington to the forefront a little bit. He uh, he got he, but he'd already been on uh, Larry King Live. So uh, now again, great event, 
But this idea that that event spawned a cascading of valuable things in the Greer... We're not going that far. No, we're not going that far. Stephen, Stephen, you put words in your mouth, okay? Number one is we do have a very popular site, theparacast.com. We have a forum, forum, theparacast.com, where our listeners and regular visitors do weigh in on what they regard the evidence might be. There is also a site that you may have heard of called ufowatchdog.com, where people who are known for various reasons, and we can go into them, but it would take hours, to be of questionable repute are listed in a hall of shame. And people who have certainly a positive record are listed in the hall of fame. And so I think we've certainly made our views known. We've made our views known on this show. The question I think we have for you here that concerns us is if you put people with questionable beliefs against people who most people would accept as being well-authenticated, the press, the media, the government will seize on the crazies. And that's been a problem for a long, long time, but you don't agree. Well, I, 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 this is my fifth conference. Uh, I've been in this field for a long time. And overall, no, it's not a problem. It's not been a problem for me. It hasn't been a problem in, in what I'm doing. Uh, the problem, in my opinion, has been the unfortunate, how would you say, and maybe not intentional, but the unfortunate willingness of the people who, against their will, were forced into this intellectual ghetto by the government to continue to play the government's game and let the government get away with what they're doing and not really challenge that truth embargo while spending an exorbitant amount of energy and time challenging each other. I and mean, it's just unfortunate. It's human behavior, Lord. So I'm not, I'm not interacting odd, but the fact is, is that we're in this ghetto, and, and the answer to all of this is picking the perfect list of speakers for any particular conference. The answer to all of this is forcing the government once and for all to end this truth embargo. And I can assure you, that the government's willingness, at least up until recently, to maintain this embargo was hardly supported in any way by the peccadilloes of any particular researcher or witness that came forward. That was a drop in the bucket. The truth embargo was fundamentally maintained by significant disruption and interference with the media, interference with witnesses, and the wholesale dissemination of disinformation uh, that they had enormous funds to do and a commitment to the goal of, of, of maintaining that embargo. That's been the problem all along, and that's where my attentions lie. I will leave it to others to police the field if they so choose to do so. I don't attack them. You've never heard me go on a show and attack anybody that's, quote, policing the field, and that includes Mr. Royce and, uh, and anybody else. I don't do that. They want to do it. That's their business. But when they come to me and they tell me, you're gonna, you should operate this way because we're policing this, and this is what we think, well... You just found out how I respond to that. We're not asking you to do a damn thing. We're the asking you aren't. the hell we aren't? Right. You're clearly getting into this because you feel that those people shouldn't be at the conference. It would be better if they weren't there. And if I were to say to you guys, you know, you got a point. I'm dropping those speakers. You'd go right on. So come on. Let's not screw around. Here. Oh, no, 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 no. You, yo, no, we're not screwing around. You seem to misunderstand. Oh, no, Stephen. Stephen, you make many assumptions. I'm not asking you to change what you're doing. I'm asking you why you're doing it. Uh, those are two very different questions. Like I said, when I see a Peckman or, and right. let's get more specific about this, the case no of... Point arguing. I'm sorry? Broadcast will broadcast, and the listeners will decide whether you are, quote, asking me in your own way. It, it, again, That's right. uh, I am doing what I do because, and everything I do, for one reason and one reason only, 
advance the disclosure process and to end this truth embargo. If I think it does that, if I think it has that result, I will proceed, barring some extraordinary consideration that would be unacceptably disruptive or destructive. So far, you have not raised anything in that category. So you don't you don't care about. Basically, what you're saying is you don't vet anybody, right? I mean, that's basically what you're saying. You just basically say, okay, these people have an opinion. I'll just give them a platform, let them speak. In other words, you're not basically having any opinion about the people you have speaking on the platform. Just giving them the platform to speak. In other words, you're not you're, you don't have your your only opinion is you want disclosure from the government and. Again, the point is, and, and, and you answered a question that I asked before in, in the exact way that I hope you would, that, you know, when I asked you, did Peckman approach you, did you approach him? You approached him. So my question to you was, you know, why have someone like that versus, for example, here, I'll give you, a, give you an ex- a perfect example of this. So have you asked James Fox to appear at the X conference? Four times. What's happened? Okay. Have you ever asked someone like that? Uh, of course, I have an opinion about everything. And there are a number of people that I have made a decision that it's not appropriate for them to be at the X conference for the reasons that fall within the, the work that I'm doing. But, you know, that's my business, and, and I make those decisions based upon my thinking on this. And so the idea, no, I don't I don't hold a conference and say the first 20 speakers at call get to see. No, I select them based upon what I'm trying to do, based mm-hmm. upon my criteria, which may not be the same as somebody else's criteria, sure. uh, and that's it. That's as simple as that. All right. So getting back to what I was going to ask about someone like, like Alfred Weber, who actually has been involved with all of your events, and um, was it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm sure you will, was it you that had dubbed him the father of the exopolitical movement? Is that correct? He is the father of exopolitics. Whether he's the father of the exopolitical movement uh, would be a, a little less clear, but uh, father of exopolitics, oh yeah. Okay. So this is someone who you personally feel your opinion of him is that he is a very productive, credible person. Otherwise, you wouldn't have him involved at your events. Is that a correct statement on my part? I'm curious. A productive, credible person? Yeah. In terms of what you want, which is the ending of the truth embargo, that you would feel that this is someone who has contributed significantly to that or is helping oh, absolutely. with that. I gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. He's just an activist all his life. He's bucked up against the state, taken heavy heavy hits, suffered greatly. He has done this while a whole bunch of critics have sat in their ass and done nothing. So, yeah, he's contributed mightily. Okay. So, and again, you, you, you know people by what they say. I mean, this is how you know who people are, right? What, they, what do they say? What are their opinions? Now, in the case of Alfred Weber... Again, we're talking about people here. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about how all of this impacts people and how people impact this whole field because, you know, we're human beings. We're talking about human endeavors. That's the deal. Can't get away from that. And by the way, Stephen, I mean, oh, before I even, like, discuss the Weber thing, I've talked about on the Paracast how you and I sat down and I felt had a very good conversation at the Mm -hmm. Culture of Contact event. We sat down, and I've never talked about what we spoke about at that conversation. I've respected the integrity of that conversation. I've not talked about it, and I don't plan on talking about it now. Um, I'm mentioning it because, even though, uh, sadly, this this show, it seems to me, is is not going to really get anywhere in terms of trying to to help further any understanding of anything, I thought that you and I, on a one-to-one level, where our personal agendas... We're basically put aside. I thought we had a very good, productive conversation. And, um, I think we did. I, 
No, absolutely. I think we did. And, and it's, it saddens me, again, as someone who is very, very interested in this topic and, and someone who has taken three years of my life to talk about this. When you say, you know, you've got to get up and do something, Gene and I with the Paracast, I feel we very much are doing something. And the, I don't know, Gene, how many pieces of email have we gotten commending us about the fact that people, a lot of people out there who take this topic very seriously, and by the way, at very high levels, seem to feel that the Paracast is, and this is, I'm not saying, this is what, this is what we're told every mm -hmm. day now. We get emails from people telling us, you guys are the only people discussing this stuff in any kind of a reasonable way. Because we truly not, are motivated. I'm totally, I'm totally fine. I happen to think that you guys are doing great stuff. I, I like the show. Uh, you're both highly intelligent, and you're challenging, and what have you. You, you go in places and, and, and certainly challenge me in ways that others don't. Well, we're not making any friends with this in, in many ways, all right? But, but here's the thing, again, because of the fact that I personally, and anybody knows listens to the show knows, and I think this is true for Gene as well, I don't do any of this lightly. I don't take any of this to be entertainment. I get very upset when I see this topic treated as entertainment. I take it personally. Maybe I shouldn't even do that, but, but I do, because I have had a lifelong involvement in this that I've never asked for, by the way. I mean, this is basically a situation where I've been kind of pulled in in a way that I've resisted most of my, most of my life up until the last three years. I wouldn't talk about this stuff with almost anybody. I certainly didn't do a radio show where I put my public credibility on the line, that's what I've been doing. So, you know, when you say, you know, get get up and do something about it, Gene and I have very much been doing something about this. I didn't so, point to you guys. I was speaking in general about critics who criticize but don't do anything. Let me tell you my concern. Look, here's my concern. You, you're making your contributions. Your contactee, contactees always have very complicated relationships. With I never said I'm a con Whoa, 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 whoa. I never said I was a contactee. Somebody said you were a contactee. Which one of you is contactee? Neither, Neither of us are contactee. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We're talking to Stephen Bassett, and we have one more session to go. He is connected with Paradigm Research Group and the X-Conference 2009. Before he leaves, he'll give us the full story about that. But I'm not a contactee. I've never had a UFO sighting. David has had a number of paranormal encounters, but he does not regard himself as a contactee, okay? Yeah, no, no, no. You guys have done a lot of work. You put a lot into this. You've got a good show. Always oh, good. But, David, i got to tell you, and you may want to try to get some feedback on this from some honest brokers, there are times when you come across way too much like Joe McCarthy, and that isn't helpful. 
That's not good. That's interesting. No, I never heard that before. That's a good one. <laughs> and I think if you ask people that will give you an honest response, they're going to say, you know, you are. You're kind of coming across like Joe McCarthy. And I don't think that's healthy, but that's your business. That's your business. Okay? But, yeah. Well, I'm certainly, I'm someone who's certainly not afraid of confrontation. No, no. But here's the thing. I mean, Joe McCarthy basically fabricated things about people to use against them. I'm far too lazy to do that. I don't have to fabricate a damn thing. I mean, I'm just basically uh, taking what's your history. Out. You've forgotten oh. your history, my friend. Uh, first of all, he did fabricate everything. They had a lot of hard evidence on people. He uncovered some real communists. He also uncovered other people that were probably innocent. And overall, just approached the whole thing in a very destructive way. Okay, life is just never black or white or simple. Oh, no, I, I, and I'm certainly Joe, not so... If you yeah, yeah. didn't have a good for some people. Look, it's just that we don't have to go down that road, but that's your business. But when I'm on that road, and you come down that road to me, you're going to get a response, right? Because well, yeah, I've been invited to one of his hearings. I think it's pretty obvious. All right, so, again, you're someone who is supportive of, of Alfred Weber. So, I, have mm -hmm. to, I think it's a fair question to ask you. Then when someone, well, not someone like Alfred Weber, when Alfred Weber says in a statement about exopolitics, I'm reading his words, these are his words, okay? Um, the age-long exopolitical quarantine of Earth appears to be ending. A first step through this quarantine is a public interest diplomacy mission to the peaceful, ethical, intelligent civilization on Mars. You're on Larry King, talking about disclosure, and Larry King, I'm not Larry King, but Larry King asks you, okay, so you got this guy, Alfred Weber, he's, he, you know, you're, you're supportive of him, and he reads his T1 air. How do you respond? I'm curious, I'm just wondering, how do you respond to that? You want my answer? You want Larry yeah. King? Yeah. I would say, well, Alfred is a writer in conclusions, and if the conclusions are right, some of the things that he writes after that make actually sense. As far as the stuff on Mars, he made it clear. He's garnished that information from remote viewing. Now, it would be easy to say, well, if it's remote viewing, then it's nonsense. So we just toss it out and say, well, you know, Alfred, you're off in left field on that, except for one small thing. The government's extensive remote viewing program, all of the remote viewers that have come forward have documented it, all of the evidence that, in fact, there's something to it that seems to work. And so based on that alone, you can basically can't toss remote viewing out the window, which means you can't toss out the possibility that, in fact, that evidence, which he is getting from remote doing, may be correct. But then it may not be correct. And if it's not, then the conclusions that he makes probably will fall apart. He's not the only one out there that talks about the quarantining of Earth. But he's no, no, he's not. I do believe, though... I, I'm, right, I'm right. finishing up. If somebody asks me, are you 100% convinced there's an underground civilization on Mars? No, I don't know. Do I know for a fact we're quarantined? No, I don't know. Do I think that Alfred Weber is insane because he goes there? Not at all. Okay. Did he also remote view the particle beam weapons destroying the World Trade Centers that he's publicly stated? Just wondering. Playing devil's advocate. We're role-playing here. Because the man publicly stated that the World Trade Centers were brought down by an alien particle beam weapon. Now, let me make a statement there. Am I 100% sure that is not true? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say that publicly. Very comfortable with it. There was no... Alien particle beam weapon that brought down the World Trade Centers. That's right. You can quote me on that. Period there, 911. A lot of them are put up by professors that are still teaching at universities. In fact, one who I met recently, Flitzer, uh, just retired from teaching after I don't know how many years, wrote 18 books. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the 911 stuff is wild and crazy. He has his theories, other people have their theories. That's that, what, what else can you say about that? I mean, what else can you say? That's about it. Uh, I, I don't have the means to 
be able to establish absolute proof about everybody's thinking and theories on everything else. I judge people on what their intentions are, what the goals are, what they, their actions, what they have done to contribute to this. And if I feel that their hearts are in the right place and their actions are movements in the right direction, I, I have no trouble supporting them. And if they're brilliant with high IQs and Jewish doctor degrees from Yale, well, that doesn't hurt either. I can assure you that within the bowels of government, even on Capitol Hill, there are people making decisions that affect your life every day that, frankly, if you knew enough, you wouldn't hire them to, to babysit your dog. Hey, it's a complex world. What can I say? Oh, absolutely. And actually, there are a lot of people that say that George W. Bush had all the right intentions. There are some of us who feel he was a war criminal. I mean, you know, if you want to... You want to play this one? I mean, you know, certainly. In fact, he probably would say that he felt that he was doing the right thing. If Alfred Weber launches the United States into an unnecessary war with the wrong country, I will sever my relationships with him immediately. <laughs> okay. Well, it's always good to establish thresholds, right? And, and and I'm glad that you said that because I would certainly hope that you would do that. But again, we're, we're, let's get back to the issue of the credibility of the field because it seems to me, and I could certainly be wrong, I always reserve that right to be wrong, and I say that on the show all the time. In talking about this topic, I'm very cautious about making statements of things that are in any way absolute in the same way, Stephen, that... Uh, when we talk about the extraterrestrial presence, I'm going to let people like Jacques Vallée have an equal seat at this card table. Now, there's some people that say that uh, that this is even more complex than that, that the idea of extraterrestrial beings visiting Earth is maybe too subtle a description of what's really go going on. So I'm, I'm very, very cautious about making statements that are absolute in nature, uh, okay? Um, I'm very cautious about that on the show. And that's why I said, you know, so, so, so the point is that's why, you know, I will certainly stay. I will agree with you in that I feel that uh, the government is holding back a bunch of information from us. You know, I think we're on the same page with that. The, 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 I think the problem here that we have, and, you know, uh, certainly our listeners might judge and say that you've gotten every bit as emotional and confrontational as I have in this episode. But putting that aside for a minute, and again, let's go back to the tone that we had at the conversation we had at the Culture of Contact event, which, by the way, I don't know if you realize, that we spoke for like, it was like two and a half hours that we were sitting there talking, you and I. It was a very long conversation. And I, and I actually, sadly, I mean, I wish that this was that conversation, which sadly it's not. But credibility is a huge issue with this topic. Credibility is the ultimate fulcrum that we can make anything happen with here. Everything that detracts from that credibility it's going to make this harder. I'm not saying it's going to make it impossible, but certainly it, it makes the whole thing harder. And, and a lack of critical thinking is really probably what got us into this whole mess to begin with. So I've always been of the belief that critical thinking is a very useful thing. Now, some people say, well, you know, you're, you're just attacking the personalities. And my point is, no, I'm just basically going after what people are saying and what they go on the record with. To my way of seeing this, whenever somebody muddies these waters and detracts from credibility, because God knows this field has a credibility issue. I, I, I see, I, I feel perfectly comfortable saying that, and uh, I think Gene and I would agree that the way the media has treated this, and when we say the media, you know, let's talk about the mass media, you know, you talk about like broadcast, television. Look, the Internet is a wonderful thing. It's because of the Internet that we can do something like the Paracast. It's because of the Internet that you could even hold an event that you hold, because it would certainly be a lot harder 
to do an X conference without an internet to get the word out there. So, you know, when we talk about the mass media, the nature of that media is changing. Of course, the other side of that is that on the internet, everybody's an expert. On the internet, everybody's got a voice. And so what happens is that there's a lack of editorial constraint. And this is a huge issue in communications on the internet. Basically, anybody can say anything they want. So then it comes the time when you have to back things up. Because that's ultimately, especially if you're going to deal with appealing to the public. Because, I mean, let's be clear about this. The only way we can force disclosure is that there is a critical mass. And the only way to get that critical mass is to appeal to the masses. And, and, and sadly, and I'm not, I'm not gloating about this, I'm, I'm, I'm sad about this, that in the treatment I see of this in the mainstream media, you brought up Larry King, the Larry King show, you have people getting on there, some extremely credible people, and I'm, like with everybody else, I watched those Larry King shows and, and saw what Magaha and Shostak were saying, and I, I was just furious that these guys were basically being asshats. They were. They were not being credible. You had James Fox sitting next to Shostak. Shostak was being an idiot. I'm comfortable saying that. You know, the guy said, well, uh, an Air Force pilot, any kind of pilot, has nothing over the common Joe in, in terms of uh, being good at visual identification of things in the air. He went public with that statement. That was a tremendous blow of the, against the credibility of the skeptics. All right? I mean, he did that to himself. And, hey, listen, that, uh, you know, that was his own fault. He has to pay for that. But at the same time, when I look at how people like, and again, I don't want to pick on Pacman here, but the fact of the matter is that with the, the involvement that Pacman has had as a face for this to the media, he's made it very easy to draw the, the curtain of laughter down. And I have a problem with it because I have a problem with anything that takes away from the credibility of this topic. Anything that takes away from it gets me personally upset because, Stephen, like I said, what we want is what you want. We want there to be disclosure. So the question is, how do we go about this when obviously, it's, it's obvious to me, sadly, that we're never going to really be able to meet on this point. It's just not going to happen. So there's a certain number of people, and I'm not trying to say this is even a, a bipolar situation where there are two extreme points of view, but there are a number of people out there who want to see this treated in, in a reasonable logical, serious way. There are a number of other people who basically do look at this as entertainment. That's just the way it is. And I'm not happy about that, but that's the reality. You know, and you're saying, so what we do is we all focus on the goal of disclosure. Let's, let's all just forget the personalities. Let's forget everything but the, the, the ending of the truth embargo, right? Uh, let me bottom line for you. Um, and this is about as simple as it can be put. The way things are at this point, it seems that the principal focus of your concern is the credibility of the field of ufology. The principal focus of my concern is the credibility of the United States government. You pursue your concern, and I'll pursue mine, and we'll see which one gets us where we've got to go. It's that simple. I'll tell you what, let's kind of leave it there. Could you tell us more about the forthcoming X-Conference 2009? X-Conference 2009, April 17 through 19, website is... X-Conference 2009 will be held on April 17 uh, through 19 at the Gates Brick Hilton. So that's this one. Uh, the website is x-conference.com. We've got quite a, quite a, a program this time. Uh, Andrew Mitchell is coming back to give a lecture, really covering his thoughts on the whole field, his experience, his even his thoughts on disclosure. That's uh, first. 
He will also be part of the National Press Club press conference on Monday morning. Nick Pope will be coming in to lecture on all the developments in the U.K., and he will be part of the press conference on uh, Monday. There will be a debate, an hour-and-a-half debate, between myself and military intelligence officer uh, Dr. John Alexander. Uh, Graham Hancock is coming in to talk about ancient exopolitics, and Roger Lear has had a major breakthrough in his research. Uh, it will be revealed for the first time at the conference. And then we have many activists and other researchers, such as Art Campbell, Alfred Weber, Michael Sala, Bella Harris. We have some visiting guest activists, uh, Jill Buckman, Rebecca Harcastle, Barry Mansfield. It is an extraordinary lineup, and uh, we have a special guest, and that is uh, Major Air Force retired Milton Price, who... According to the release document in the U.K. files, it was ordered to shoot down a UFO in 1957. He couldn't get to it, but on his radar, it appeared to be massive, and then it took off at enormous speed. He uh, kept silent all the years because he was asked to. But in interviews, since uh, that uh, document came out, he has said quite clearly he felt it could only have been an ET, a non-human vehicle, and uh, believes that the government is, in fact, uh, withholding uh, the truth from us. So we will have Milton there, and I'm really excited about that. So it's going to be quite a conference, and I hope that many of you listeners can, can join us at the Hilton Gatesburg. All right. And one more time, where do we find more information about this? The conference is, of course, at x-conference.com, and Paradigm Research Group's homepage is paradigmresearchgroup.org. And it's enough to keep you busy for a month. Very good. Stephen Bassett, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. It's great to be back on the show, guys. Uh, maybe a little more uh, heat than light this time around, but uh, good. Uh, it's a heavy topic, heavily emotional, a lot at stake. So, uh, and I'm not afraid to uh, listen to, uh, I'm not afraid to listen to hard views. I'm not, and I'm certainly not afraid to express myself. But in the end, we are all going to cross the finish line together, and we will uh, enter the new post-disclosure world together, and, and then we'll see what's what when that comes we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the Paracast send it to news at the Paracast.com that's news at the Paracast.com and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David just go to the Paracast.com and click on the forum links that's the forum links at the Paracast.com Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Diedney. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought. I don't know if it's going to be the kind of session people expect we're going to trash somebody. Let's just talk about <laughs> what happened, because I think it speaks for himself. I think Stephen Bassett, when confronted with serious questions, he can't answer them. Well, he won't answer them. He moves the goalpost. The defensiveness that came up when I asked him really basic questions about people's credibility, this idea that people's credibility plays no role in this, I don't believe that Bassett believes that. You see, this is where this gets interesting. Steve Bassett's not a dumb guy. He's not. So when he puts up this, uh, this uh, point that, well, you know, the credibility is what it is, I don't buy that. The credibility is not what it is. The credibility that you present at your conference is what you choose to present. He That's has right. the choice of what guests to bring on. He, he has the choice. He does right. He reached out to somebody of questionable background. Jeff Peckman, 
That's just one name. Weber. Well, Start the list from beginning to end. And how okay, many you know, people... Weber, a doctorate from Yale. Yeah, and a guy who says that alien particle beam weapons brought down the World Trade Center. A guy who talks about remote viewing intelligent life on Mars. Um, maybe that's where the intelligent life is. I don't know. But uh, you, you have that kind of stuff getting thrown around. And, you know, Paula Harris, gee, she's a real credible journalist. Billy uh, Meyer is the real deal. You notice I uh, said that deliberately wondering uh-huh. whether he would say, Oh, you mean Paula Harris? He wouldn't even get in there. He no. wouldn't touch it with a ten-foot pole. Not a thing. Not a thing. So you got to wonder about what this guy's real motivation is. And you know, the thing about credibility, Gene, personal credibility, is that ultimately, it's all that any of us have is our credibility as people. My past, your past, are open books to our audience. I have a verifiable past before I got involved in this quote-unquote field. I didn't just appear out of nowhere. You didn't just appear out of nowhere. I knew about the stuff you had written about in technology for a long time before I ever came on your technology show. You know, we still don't really know anything about Stephen Bassett. He Every time we've tried to talk to him about his background, and we didn't get into it this time, there were too many other things to cover, but whenever we've gotten into that with him, he... He's very dismissive of it. Something I've really noticed about the people in this field is that the more credible ones are the ones that have verifiable backgrounds. Then there are the people who don't have verifiable backgrounds. They just sort of appear out of the ether. And uh, and we're supposed to give those people some degree of credibility. And I say, no, no, I don't believe things work like that. So I wonder about this whole situation. I wonder about the mixing of what you and I might consider to be credible people with who I feel is not credible. And in the case of Jeff Peckman, I'm completely comfortable stating that he is in no way even vaguely credible. It's also, Uh, if you're going to pick and choose, and you have your choice of a lot of important guests, a lot of compelling Mm -hmm. people who can come in there and present a pretty credible presentation of UFOs. You mean like George Norrie? You'll never know what I believe. You'll never know what I'm thinking. And we would never care. But the point being, no, but when you have a choice, Stanton Friedman. He's not there. Okay. No James Fox. Well, he said he invited James Fox, and and James Fox didn't, uh, didn't accept. Gee, I wonder why. I've never seen Leslie Kane on that list. No Jerome Clark, but you want to talk about a guy who's tracked the history of this. I don't see Jacques Vallée up on that stage. Why? Because Vallée wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot cone. No, well, for, for rather obvious reasons, because these are people who are concerned about personal credibility. To state that personal credibility plays no role in this is to simply dismiss any sense of pragmatic reality, I think. Because uh, it's clear to me that one of the biggest problems in advancing this is that you don't know who to believe. You really don't know who's, you know, sort of blowing wind up your butt. And uh, this this extreme defensiveness, this extreme defensiveness. I'm not, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, Gene, but I don't know. It's uh, I think that that extreme show of defensiveness was perhaps the most instructional thing that came out of this episode. And I'll tell you what, I think this is going to open up 
an interesting level of discussion and maybe a whole new can of worms that we'll explore on future episodes of The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 